chapter 3, where we're going to be looking at verse 18 down through chapter 4, verse 1. I know verse 1 is in chapter 4, but it goes with the material in chapter 3. So, chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1 in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And there's a lot to cover, so we're going to get right to it and ask you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we ask for your help now, even as we just sang together in that last song. We know that you have spoken in your word, and we ask that you would give us ears now to hear, to hear what you are speaking in the scriptures, Father. We affirm, God, our confidence in the fact that your word is true, that it is good that it is right, that it means to bless us in Christ, because this is your heart as our Father. We pray, Father, that you would help us to hear your word as we ought, with humble, submissive hearts that are willing to be corrected, that are easy to be encouraged, and that are quick to proclaim that the Lord is good. Father, help us now. Please help me to say things that are true and faithful to the Scriptures. And please help your people to hold fast to what is true. And would you please, God, use us, even now, to make much of Christ in this world. We pray in His name. Amen. Friends, what comes to your mind when you hear the word authority? I think it's fair to say that few concepts in our day are more misunderstood than authority. For many people, authority represents something that must be thrown off in the quest to find true freedom. We think about the silly example of the bumper sticker on the back of the car that says, question authority, even as that person obeys stoplights. Or we think about the serious example of the cultural pressure to redefine what it means to be male and female. All around us, it seems, are those who believe authority is something to be rejected, At the same time, there are also those who see authority as simply a means of getting what they want. We think of a self-centered boss who takes credit for his employee's hard work so that he gets the reward. Or worse, we think of the harsh husband or father whose heavy-handedness sucks the life out of the home. 
instead of denying authority, those examples distort it. And those distortions then contribute to our confusion. Because we've all seen authority misused, it becomes easier to think, you know what? Perhaps authority is something to be rejected. Perhaps the whole problem is with authority itself. We're confused. As Christians, however, we must recognize that this confusion misses both the purpose and honestly the beauty of how God intended authority to work. Remember, friends, central to the Gospel message is the declaration that Jesus is Lord, which is absolutely a statement of authority. We believe that Jesus Christ possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore, we are not free to reject authority in the quest to find personal liberation. And yet, at the same time, the Gospel message also tells us that the sovereign Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, it's here in the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is far more focused on Jesus than we tend to think it is. It's here in the person of Jesus Christ that Christians find the answer to our cultural confusion on authority. It's in light of Christ that we understand why submitting to rightly established authority is a good thing, And it's also in light of Christ that we understand why exercising authority is more about other people than it is about my position. So on the question, on this question, the overall message of Colossians holds true. Jesus Christ is supreme. He holds all things together. And the world, including authority, makes sense only in connection with Christ. Friends, it is this Christ-centered focus that should get your attention when you read this paragraph in Colossians. There can be no denying that this text deals with authority and our response to it. In these verses, Paul addresses a number of relationships in the first century household. Husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and household servants. And in each relationship, Paul is clearly concerned that authority be rightly exercised and then given the right response. That much is clear. But what can be easily overlooked is the central importance of the Lordship of Christ in these relationships. Maybe you heard it when we read. I hope you heard it when we read. Seven times in this one paragraph, Paul references Jesus Christ as Lord. And he does so in every set of relationships. Marriage, parenting, work, and service. Seven times... And in every sphere, Paul declares that Jesus is Lord. And therefore, authority, both how it's exercised and how it's received, is ultimately about the Lord Jesus. And that's truly the grand point of this paragraph, brothers and sisters. It's why I'm preaching the whole paragraph together. Because if there's one thing I want you to see, it's this, the Lordship of Christ. Since the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has urged us to live with a heavenly mindset, to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And here in this passage, Paul makes clear that this includes the relationships of day in and day out life. It includes our homes and our work. The way that we act in those daily relationships matters because it's telling the world something about Jesus. 
And that's what I want us to see. So in terms of an outline, we're going to keep it pretty simple. Paul addresses three different sets of relationships. So we're going to have three points to consider, each connected with Christ. Christ's lordship in marriage, verses 18 and 19. Christ's lordship in the family, verses 20 and 21. And Christ's lordship in our service, verse 22 through verse 1 of chapter 4. Marriage, family, service. Before we get to the details though, let me offer you two brief reminders that I hope will prevent any misunderstanding of what Paul is saying. First of all, Paul addresses three different types of relationships in this text, but these are not the only relationships that matter. Paul is not saying that you must be married or you must have children or you must have a certain kind of work in order to live for Christ. This is important, friends. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We're not saved by marital status or family status or work environment. Saved by Christ. Faith in Christ. So Paul's focus in this paragraph is representative but not exhaustive. You see what I'm saying? It's representative but not exhaustive. These spheres are important, but they're not ultimate. Christ is ultimate. Okay? That's the first reminder. The second reminder is this. Paul's strategy is radically countercultural. His strategy is radically countercultural. In the first century, it was common to find these kinds of household lists. You can find them all the time in ancient literature. But interestingly, those cultural lists addressed only the rights of husbands, fathers, and masters. But notice what Paul is doing. He doesn't address the rights of husbands, fathers, and masters. He addresses their duties, their obligations under the Lordship of Christ. He turns it upside down. What's more, Paul does what no first century list ever did. He addresses wives and children and servants. The cultural practice in Paul's day was honestly to ignore those people. They just didn't, they didn't show up in a cultural list. Paul puts them in the list. He puts them first in order to turn the whole cultural model on its head. Paul addresses each person, and he does so because each person stands equally before the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's teaching is countercultural in a subversive kind of way. There's a difference between being a revolutionary and being a subversive. A revolutionary wants to burn everything down. A subversive person wants to get in it and work quietly so that it's overturned. You see the difference? Paul's subversive. He's counterculturally subversive. So you'll often hear somebody say, oh, I don't listen to the Apostle Paul on the practical stuff because he just went along with the culture. Paul was just culturally conditioned by what people already thought. Not true, friends. Not in the least. If you hear someone say that, you can rest assured that they don't understand what Paul is saying. What he's saying here is radically countercultural. It's a view of life that turns the ways of the world upside down which is precisely what you would expect someone to do who believes that Jesus is Lord. So, with those two reminders in view, this is representative but not exhaustive, and this is countercultural in a subversive kind of way. With those reminders in view, let's figure out what the text means with the Lord's help. We'll start in verses 18 to 19 with Christ's lordship in marriage. Christ's lordship in marriage. 
Paul jumps straight to the point in verse 18 with a command to wives. Notice what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands. Friends, the command is straightforward and the idea is that a wife should demonstrate a willingness to follow her husband's leadership. And that willingness implies loyalty, devotion, and respect. As Paul makes clear in a number of other letters, God has established the marriage relationship with a certain intention, with a certain design. And that design has been present from the creation. God calls husbands to lead and He calls wives to submit to and to willingly follow that leadership with loyalty, devotion, and respect. And remember, friends, the command here is not about abilities or personhood. The creation account is clear that both the husband and wife bear the image of God. And therefore, both of them stand accountable before their Maker for how they conduct their lives. Both of them are responsible to honor the Lord. So the point here is not about abilities. It's not about personhood. Rather, the point is about the wisdom of God. The point is about the wisdom of God in the design of His world. And even more so, it's about Christian marriages submitting to and displaying that wisdom in how they live with one another. So whatever else we might say here in verse 18, at a minimum, we must say this. A wife's submission to her husband means a willingness to follow his leadership in recognition of God's design. And yet, the command in verse 18 means much more than that as well. If I'll just be frank for a second, this is where many discussions of submission go off the rails. We tend to focus on specifics of what can or cannot be done, and we miss the beauty of what God's trying to get at. Notice the next phrase in verse 18 from the Apostle Paul. Wives, submit to your husbands, here it is, as is fitting in the Lord. Paul's point is that a wife's response to her husband must be offered in view of the Lord Jesus. She responds to her husband in a way that tells the truth about Christ and about His Gospel. Even more so, a wife submits to her husband because she is submitted to the Lord Himself. You see, it's not ultimately about her husband. It's ultimately about her Savior, the Lord Jesus. You see, there's a beauty and a depth to this that we often miss. This is why Paul, in the similar passage in Ephesians 5, connects marriage with Christ and the church. And I want to make sure that we're clear on the way that the connection goes. It's not that Paul says, oh, look at husbands and wives. That kind of looks like Jesus and the church. No, it's the other way around. Look at Jesus and the church. That kind of looks like husbands and wives. You see, it's the relationship of Christ and the church that defines the relationship in the home. There's a depth and a beauty to what's happening. If you're married here this morning, your marriage is not about you. It's about Christ. The way that a wife responds to her husband gives powerful testimony to the Gospel grace that binds the church to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key, friends. Marriage begins with God's design at creation, but it doesn't stay there. It extends also to the Lordship of Christ in the Gospel. And so, I want to just offer this encouragement to the wives among us this morning. Consider what a high calling God has given you to testify to the grace and the glory of His Son. There is Gospel testimony 
happening in how you follow, submit to, and respond to your, to your husband. There is gospel testimony there. Embrace that testimony. Embrace this scriptural call. Seeing the important way your life, including your home, is meant to magnify Christ. And if this scriptural call seems small or insignificant to you, which it might, if it seems small or insignificant to you, let me remind you of what the Lord Jesus taught over and over again about the kingdom of God. God's kingdom does not work the way the world works. God's kingdom does not look the way that the world looks. We should not expect our homes to look like the world, and neither should we expect them to make sense to the world. God takes seemingly small and insignificant things, and He uses them to reveal the greatness and glory of Christ. In fact, in God's kingdom, it's precisely through the small and quiet work of submission to God's Word that the Gospel advances and spreads. So if verse 18 sounds to you like it's a small and insignificant thing, God is saying, recognize that the kingdom of God is here. In verse 18. Is Paul's command to wives countercultural? Yes, and praise God that it is. It is countercultural, for it reminds us that we belong not to this world, but to the kingdom of God, where Christ is Lord. That's what Paul says to wives. Look at what he says to husbands in verse 19. Again, the command comes quick and with no introduction. Notice what the apostle writes, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In Paul's day, this was a nearly unthinkable command. Husbands were often, they were used to hearing about their rights in the home, but here Paul flips the script and calls them to focus on the one whom they are meant to serve. And specifically, Paul says love is the husband's expression of leadership. I don't know why this sounds surprising, but he says that love is the expression of a husband's Leadership. The idea here, friends, is to cherish something, to treasure it, to treat it with unequaled value, to treat someone, to cherish someone, your wife. And here's, here's the key, friends. Paul does not view love in verse 19 as primarily an emotional or physical response. For the believing husband, love is ultimately Christological. Love is meant to say something about Christ. Love is about the husband using his life to display the truth that Christ loves his church, even to the point of laying down his interests and setting aside his preferences in order to serve his bride. You see, the, the command to love in verse 19, and it is a command, the command to love is a call to put away the self-centered life that so often masquerades as leadership or manhood, put away the self-centered life and put on the Christ-centered life. In fact, friends, that's why Paul says specifically that husbands must not be harsh with their wives. I want you to hear me on this, brothers. When a husband is harsh to his wife, he is essentially saying to her, my authority is ultimate. I am the Lord, and I'll do whatever it takes to protect my position. You see, harshness is a denial of the Lordship of Christ. And that means a harsh husband not only sins against his wife, 
which is bad enough, but he also tells the world a lie about the Lord Jesus. And so if I can exhort husbands among us today, brothers, ask your wives. Ask your wives, how am I doing in cherishing you? In loving you as my bride? Ask her and then do the radically countercultural Christ-honoring thing and listen to what she says. Ask her and then listen. Growth in marriage tends to begin with an honest conversation. Sometimes we don't ask for the honest conversation. It just happens. But growth tends to begin with an honest conversation. And, and listen, brothers, Christ-like leadership calls you to initiate that conversation. Remember, whatever else it means to love the church, love your wife as Christ loved the church, it means that you initiate. The church didn't move towards Jesus. Jesus moved towards the church. So initiate. Have the conversation. And ask her how things are going. And along with that, brothers, and this really goes for anyone who wants to grow in exhibiting this kind of love in verse 19. Along with that conversation, study the life and ministry of Christ. Study the life and ministry of Christ. I remember hearing John Piper say that he once read through the Gospels making a note of every instance where Christ was tough and every instance where Christ was tender. They often occur in the same chapter. Mark 5 is a really good example. In the first 21 verses, Jesus stares down unthinkable spiritual evil in the form of the man who's possessed by a legion of demons. Right? He's tough in the face of evil. And then in the next 20 verses... He tenderly speaks to the woman who has the issue of blood, even calling her daughter after she touches him, which she's not supposed to do. First 20 verses, stares down evil. Second 20 verses, tenderly speaks to someone in need. That's love in action. So if you want to know how to grow in love, like it says in verse 19, study the life and the ministry of Christ. It's love in action. Tenderness, toughness, leadership, and kindness together. Let the Savior teach you what it looks like to love in this way. Marriage is not ultimate, friends. Marriage is not ultimate. But both husbands and wives are called to treat one another in a way that reveals who is ultimate. And that is the Lord Jesus Himself. So that's Paul's first area of instruction. To husbands and wives in the context of marriage. Next is verse 20. And the second relationship. Christ's Lordship in the family. Christ's Lordship in the family. Again, Paul gets right to the point. He doesn't waste any time in this passage. He just gets right to the point with the command in verse 20. Notice what he says. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, the command here most likely refers to young children who are still living at home with their parents. And in that sense, this call for obedience is probably more an exhortation to parents to train their children in obedience. But for the children who are here this morning listening, by all means, I pray that you hear God's Word calling you to obey mom and dad. And I also hope that you hear God's Word calling you to trust in Christ so that your obedience to mom and dad is a fruit of Jesus' work in your heart. If you're a child listening, it pleases God when you obey mom and dad. You can take God at His Word. At the same time, I do want to focus just for a moment on parents. And I want to ask a question that we don't often ask. Why is it that God's Word across both Testaments 
calls parents to train their children for obedience. Old covenant, new covenant, obey your parents. Why is that? It must be more than simply having well-behaved children who don't embarrass you in public. That is hardly a biblical reason. It's probably sub-biblical. So, why this insistence on obeying parents throughout the Bible? Why? Well, there are two reasons to note. At least two. Two reasons to note. First of all, obedience cultivates wisdom. Obedience cultivates wisdom. Wisdom is the skill of living faithfully in God's world according to God's Word. The skill of living faithfully in God's world according to God's Word. And of all the tools that God has given parents, it is this one, obedience, that helps cultivate wisdom. You see, we do not come into this world naturally inclined to follow the wise path of God's Word. We come into this world mired in sin and foolishness. Parents, then, are God's means of preparing children for wisdom, of teaching them how to live in God's world according to His Word. Very simply, friends, obedience teaches our children that they are not God and that this is not their world, that there's a God that they need to listen to. Now, of course, obedience cannot save our children any more than our obedience can save us. Only the grace of God given by the Spirit through the preaching of the Gospel can save our children. But God works through means, brothers and sisters. God works through means. And the parent's task of training for obedience is one of the Lord's primary means of giving grace to those little souls that are growing up in your home. So that's the first reason obedience matters. Because it cultivates wisdom. And wisdom leads to life. The second reason is tied to the first Obedience to parents prepares children to obey God. Obedience to parents prepares children to obey God. Put very simply, friends, I want my boys to obey their mother and me because by God's grace, I want them to learn to obey God Himself. You can hear it again, the grand purpose of this passage on authority. It's about more than child and parent. It's about your child and God. You don't own your child. God does. And you're called to steward your child and to help them recognize that they're not God, but that there is a God whom they need to obey. And Paul's point here is that training for obedience is one of the Lord's primary means of grace to prepare children to see that Jesus is Lord. In fact, notice how Paul connects the command with the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, what, Paul, what is Paul doing? He is redirecting our attention away from merely ourselves and he's giving us a grand picture of life defined by Christ. So why does obedience matter in your home? Because it cultivates wisdom and it prepares little hearts to obey God. Paul then quickly transitions to fathers. Verse 21. Just to be clear, he's not ignoring mothers at this point. He just mentioned parents, plural, in verse 20. So he's not ignoring moms. Instead, Paul is drawing on what is consistent across, across the Scriptures that fathers are called by God to lead in the training of their children. Dads, are you doing that? Are you taking the lead? Or are you on the sidelines? We're called to lead. The command here focuses on the right use of the Father's authority. Notice what Paul says, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You see, fathers have a profound ability to help set the climate in the family. It's March Madness, so 
My father-in-law will often talk about how dads have a home court advantage in the heart of their kids. And when you use the home court advantage right, it binds your kids to you, right? When you use it wrongly, when you provoke them, it can discourage them. I'll be 38 next month, and still to this day, if I know something pleases my dad, I'm much more likely to do it. Fathers have a profound ability to set the climate in the family. There is a way of treating your children that doesn't encourage them towards obedience. Instead, it discourages them. It robs them, so to speak, of the spirit that is ready to comply. And Paul says fathers must put that kind of parenting away. Don't domineer, Paul says. You're bigger than them. You're louder than them. You can make them do what you want. Don't do that. Don't domineer. Don't treat them in a way that arouses anger. It struck me one time after a particularly heated exchange with one of my sons that I was speaking to him in a tone that I would never use with another human being. No wonder the situation was heated. I provoked his little heart to anger. Paul says, put that away. Put that away. Use your position as a father to encourage and cultivate glad-hearted obedience. There's much more we could say, but perhaps just as a point of application here for parents this morning, set aside some time, perhaps even this evening, to talk and pray through how you might grow in this area. Talk with each other about how things are going with your children. And fathers, initiate the conversation. Initiate the conversation. Talk through how you're doing as a family and encouraging this kind of obedience. Again, not so that we're merely well-behaved. That's actually a bad reason. But so that we learn to walk wisely in obedience to God. Talk through how things are going. Make a plan for how you can grow and then pray. Ask other brothers and sisters for help. Parenting is hands down the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I'm sure it is for you too. Pray and ask God for help. Ask another brother or sister to help. Talk through these things and see where you can grow. Family is not ultimate, friends. Children are not ultimate. But families can, by God's grace, point to the one who is ultimate, the Lord Jesus. That's Paul's second area of instruction, Christ's lordship in the family. That brings us to the final section, beginning in verse 22, Christ's lordship in our service. Christ's lordship in our service. Paul concludes with another common relationship in the first century household, that of servants to their masters. Now, Paul Paul is not saying that this relationship is the same as marriage or family. Marriage and family are rooted in creation. This relationship is ultimately rooted in fallen human nature. So there's a difference here. And contrary to what some people might say, Paul does expect the gospel to transform this relationship in a fundamental way. We would be here for hours if I explained why I thought that was true. But I'll just give you one reason why I think it's true. Read Philemon this afternoon. Read Philemon and you can hear Paul's expectation that the gospel will bring change in the relationship between masters and household servants. Read Philemon. Paul wants his readers to understand that the lordship of Christ addresses even this area of life, and in ways that are transformative. Now, in terms of contemporary application, our focus here will be on how Paul clearly views the gospel as a means of transforming the way we go about our work in the world. So the parallels are not exact between first century masters and servants 
and 21st century employers and employees. But the job of the preacher is to build a bridge from the first century to our century so that we can make some sort of application. And there's enough parallels here between authority and response and authority and response that we're going to talk about how this should change the way we go about our work. All right? So, verse 22, Paul tells household servants to obey their masters. And then he goes on to describe how this attitude should be manifested in the way that they work. This is the key, friends. The Lordship of Christ demands that we go about our responsibilities, that we go about our work in a distinctly Christian way. What does that look like? Paul's going to tell us. Notice what he says here. Three things. First of all, distinctly Christian work means that we work with integrity. Notice again verse 22. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. When I was a kid, Saturday morning was the time to clean up the house, and each kid was responsible for his or her own room in a certain amount of time. But I figured out pretty quickly that there was a way to look like I was cleaning up so that my dad would leave me alone. My siblings would get in trouble, but I skated by because I passed the eye test. I looked like I was busy. Paul says here in verse 22, don't work that way. Don't go about your work as a mere people pleaser. The reality is that we can often fool those in authority over us, and we can appear to be serving or working when we're really not. And strikingly, Paul corrects this by pointing us to the Lord Jesus. Notice the reference to fearing the Lord at the end of verse 22. When we work as people pleasers, when we just put up appearances, when we work hypocritically, we're denying the Lordship of Christ. We're saying there is an area of our lives, our work, that doesn't belong to Jesus. And we can just do whatever we want to get by. Paul says we must put that away. Christians must be people who work with integrity. And so I just ask you, is that true of you, friends? Is it true of you? Does your work reveal a heart of integrity where what other people can see is what they're actually getting? As Christians, this is part of our calling to work with integrity. And so we need to ask, is this true of me? Am I a people pleaser, eye service worker? Or do I work as one who fears the Lord? Paul's not finished. He also says distinctly Christian work must mean that we work hard. Notice verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Notice how universal verse 23 is. Whatever you do, Paul says, nothing is excluded. Friends, this is the theology of Colossians applied to everyday life. Over what? Does Jesus reign? Everything. Chapter 1. All things were created through Him and for Him. And therefore, in what spheres are you to work hard for His glory? In every sphere. Whatever it is. Wherever God has placed me. You see the connection? Jesus is Lord. That's our confession. Jesus is Lord. And therefore, our lives need to display a willingness to do whatever God has given us to do. To work hard as unto Him. Now, I want you to think about the freedom that this should give us as Christians to live today, right now, for the glory of Christ. 
I want you to think about the freedom that verse 23 is giving you to live for Christ right now. We're having a bathroom remodeled at our house. It's not nearly as fun as it sounds. And recently, they retiled the shower. A very friendly man named Jesus did the work. I don't know if Jesus is a believer, but I can tell you this. He worked hard to lay the tile with great skill. The grout lines on every wall match perfectly with the ceiling and the floor. He treated the shower like a canvas. I mean, he was measuring, cutting, recutting. It wasn't just tile. It was art. It was like art for him. And I thought, that's a great picture of verse 23. That's a great picture of whatever you do, work heartily. Again, I don't know if Jesus is a Christian, but that approach that he modeled, that approach to doing what he had to do that day, that's what verse 23 is talking about. It's working hard, exhibiting skill, because Christ reigns over everything, including retiling a shower. So, we, we should love this image of a Christian craftsman remodeling a bathroom to the glory of God. Or a teacher instructing with warmth and skill. Or a mother providing care to the household. Or a doctor laboring for wholeness and health. Or an electrician providing quality work. Whatever it is, Paul says. Whatever it is. All to the glory of Christ. That's compelling, friends. And if I could make a rather bold statement, the world would be better if we went about our work that way. The world would be better. It's what God has called us to do, in fact, in whatever sphere the Lord has given us. It's the theology of Colossians. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, whatever you do, work heartily. As Paul says in verse 23. Work with integrity. Work hard. There's one more point to note. Distinctly Christian work calls us to work with confidence in the Lord. Notice verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Friends, it's striking that Paul would tell household servants that they will receive an inheritance. Servants were not included in the family estate. But Paul says, you've got a better inheritance coming a heavenly inheritance with the Lord Himself. You see, Paul's ultimate counsel is that we place our confidence in the Lord Jesus. Our circumstances may be difficult. Our work may be hard. Your job may be unrewarding. Your position may be even unjust as it was for these household servants in the first century. It could be hard, unrewarding, unjust. But instead of growing discouraged or losing heart, Paul points us to Christ. Work for the last day, Paul says. Work for the last day. Work with the realization that your work doesn't actually define you. Christ does. You are in Him by faith and therefore your future is eternally secure. You can labor in light of the last day because already you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The whole letter holds together here in Christ. And Paul Paul then drives this home in verse 25. Look what he writes. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Earthly authorities are not the final judge. Christ is. And He will make things right on the last day. The wrongdoer, whether he is powerful or whether he is lowly, will receive justice. Christ shows no partiality. Master and servant alike will stand before God at the end and therefore work as unto the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Work in light of Christ. 
Before he closes, notice that Paul puts masters under the lordship of Christ as well. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, I hope you're hearing the countercultural tone of the text. Paul does what no first century writer would have ever done. He commands masters to show justice and fairness to those under them. The gospel brings change, is what Paul is saying. The gospel brings change. But most importantly, notice why masters must do this. Because they have a master in heaven. You see, no matter how powerful you are on earth, you are not ultimate. You have a master too. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is the Lord of all people. And everyone, regardless of their earthly position, will give an account to Him. Indeed, those in this life who have been entrusted with authority should recognize this, to whom much is given, much is required. If you're in a position of authority in this life, which all of us are on some level, then you need to recognize the deep accountability that places you under before God. The Lord Jesus is returning and He will ask you, what did you do with the people whom I trusted to your care? The Master is returning one day and everyone, even earthly authorities, will give an account. And so friends, here at the end of the passage, notice where Paul leaves us. He leaves all of us under the Lordship of Christ. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's where Paul leaves us. Wives and husbands, children and parents, masters and servants, each of us, regardless of position, must submit ourselves to Christ alone. That's really the grand application of this text. It compels us to ask ourselves, am I submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I trust Him by faith to be my Savior? And am I, am I submitting to Him in my daily life, not just in what I say, which is profoundly important, but in how I live in the relationships that make up every day? Jesus is Lord. That is the message of Colossians. Indeed, it's the message of all of Scripture. And so may God give us grace to live out His Lordship in our homes, in our families, and in our service, all to the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. We do recognize that fundamental to the church's confession is the reality that Jesus is Lord. And we also know, Father, that fundamental to our hearts is that we like to act as though we are Lord. Would You help us to be repentant? Where we have authority, Father, would You help us to use it in a way that demonstrates the reality of Christ? And where we are under authority, would You help us to be submissive, Father, in a way that honors Christ? In all that we do, Father, help us to live in such a way that displays the reality of the, of the Gospel, that in Christ all things hold together. Give us this grace, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.